We just keep getting younger every year. All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. I don't think I could sing that, not because I'm a lousy singer only, but I don't think I could get through it. There's, there's a few lines in there that are quite, rather gripping. Get you. Romans 5, we may also be going to Galatians, a kind of a hint of things to come perhaps. past few years, Pam and I have gotten our grandsons together and sent out Christmas cards that bear Christ's image in their faces. And we we just haven't had the opportunity for several reasons to do that this year. So I decided that today's message is going to be a Christmas card. And it's from kind of a pastoral heart, to Tetelestai Phalanx. We're getting the identity of Phalanx even more so in the past few messages and will be in the future. And so this will be called a Christmas card. And I think and hope you'll see that it's decorated with insights, not so much lights, but maybe some insights. And it's also going to serve the purpose of advancing forward in Romans the Epistle to a conclusion a double conclusion, really. We're laboring on Romans 8 on Sundays and Romans 11 on Wednesdays to come to a double climactic conclusion. One in Romans 8.32, God did not spare his son, but freely gave him up on behalf of us all. So how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And in Romans 11.32, God has summed up all of the human race in the category of disobedience, in order that he might have mercy upon all. Therefore, his unconditional, unrestricted, and unlimited love meets his universal mercy, all because of Christ and him crucified, which is what I've determined to know and communicate and nothing else. I have a huge dictionary laid out in front of my desk in front of me at my desk because I find it useful second only to the Bible and the Greek text in the American Heritage College Dictionary fifth edition I decided to look up what Christmas is according to the dictionary it's a Christian feast commemorating the birth of Jesus and then secondly it says December 25th the day on which this feast is observed as a public holiday in many countries. The third definition, Christmas tide from the Middle English Christmas, C-R-I-S-T-E-M-A-S, from the Old English Christus plus Mass, or Mass, Christ's festival, literally. And then I looked up right next to a Christmas card, a decorated card sent at Christmas to express goodwill. Almost always our definition of Christmas is centered in history, never in eschatology. And that's going to be the great differentiation of consciousness that the sword of the word, the infinitely sharp sword of the word, makes differentiations in our consciousness. It divides soul and spirit. And 
I think that the Holy Spirit is ready to wield that sword in Tetelestai phalanx to make a distinction in our understanding and our perception between history and eschatology, which in turn will answer almost every question a person can have regarding the scriptures. Almost every question you can have is answered in that distinction, that differentiation of consciousness. So today's message will not only advance our study of Romans, the epistle, which I've also titled Reading Romans with the Light On, but let it be a Christmas card sent to you, especially to Tetelestai Phalanx, but also to all people, literally to all people, and hopefully decorated with insights. Yesterday, I also decided to look back a year See what teachings I brought forth to you around Christmas and New Year's Day. I usually end up saying something of relevance to those two holidays. Because even though I may not esteem any particular day over another, I know there are those who do. And I usually tried to make something relevant about a Christmas or New Year's Day. And so I also try, and this has been my goal, never to repeat a so-called Christmas message or a New Year's message from the year before. But I did look back in the files and see some notes, and on 12-31-17, I found the following quote, and it's in his note of Romans 5.18 in a book called A Translation the New Testament, by David Bentley Hart. The verse is Romans 5.18, and it says, So then, just as by the one's transgression, condemnation came to all human beings, so also by one act of righteousness unto rectification of life for all human beings through the one righteous act of the one man, Jesus Christ, of course. On that, David Bentley Hart made this comment, and I think it's the strongest contribution he's made in that whole translation and commentary is right here. He says, The strict proportionality of the formulation is quite clear. And in the surrounding verses, just as the first sin brought condemnation and death to absolutely everyone. He emphasizes it with italics. So Christ's act of righteousness brings righteousness and life to absolutely everyone. Whether intentional or not, Hart says, the plain meaning of the verse is that of universal condemnation annulled by universal salvation. This quote from Hart truly grasps the plain meaning of Paul. Paul speaking quite plainly. Romans 5.18 probably more succinctly and plainly sums up what I like to call the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal Redemptive impact of the cross of Christ 
That one verse sums it up more succinctly and concisely, compactly, than any other verse in Romans. Or anywhere else in the Bible, for that matter. Other verses are competitive and try to do the same thing. Titus 2.11 comes to mind. The grace of God has appeared. It's a Christmas verse. Christmas doesn't culminate until Calvary and then resurrection. The grace of God has appeared, salvation to all of humanity, period, over and out. Titus 3, 4 to 5 competes also for the prize. When the philanthropy of God appeared, philanthropy this time, grace of God, Philanthropy of God. When the philanthropy of God appeared, he saved us. This is where we start to understand what happened eschatologically in the triune God at Calvary in God's embrace of all created reality in all of its times. This is where we begin to understand it. When the philanthropy of God appeared, that's his passionate philanthropy for a humankind, he saved us according to his mercy. 1 Corinthians 15.22 is one of those verses where the King James Version actually captures the sense splendidly. For as in Adam all die... Even so, in Christ, shall all be made alive. And then there is the verse famously quoted by the old theologian, he calls himself, Linus. There is a guy named Linus in Paul's last epistle. He mentions him in his last, among his last words. So I think Charles Schultz had an understanding of that. When he wanted to cheer up his friend Charlie Brown, tell him what Christmas is all about, he said, among other things, this, and the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, 10 and 11. Still another verse, or we could say a half of a verse, in 1 Timothy 4, 10b competes for the honor of the best verse in the Bible as far as the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 10b, we have put our hope in the living God, Paul says, who is the savior of absolutely everyone. Everyone, especially of those who believe. Here we have this distinction that begins for our 2019 theme. Eschatology, the savior of everyone, absolutely. History, one by one, especially of those who believe. History, especially of those who believe. Eschatologically, 
The living God is the savior of absolutely everyone. It happened in an event that culminated with an Aramaic saying, the Greek text of which is to die, the English text of which is mission accomplished. It is accomplished. What was accomplished? <laughs> more than you know, more than I know. What was accomplished in the outstretched arms of Jesus crucified is the unconditional loving embrace of all of creation in all of its times, savingly, reconcilingly, redemptively. The joy of seeing things eschatologically and not just historically, almost all celebrations of Christmas celebrate the historical event of the birth of Jesus. Few of those celebrants consider the eschatological implications of eternity intersecting with time, engulfing time, embracing all of creation. Salvifically, savingly, Christologically, eschatologically. Romans 5.18 really outshines them all. So then as through one sin came condemnation, that means, he explains, leading to death to all people. So through the righteous act of one, Jesus Christ, came the rectification of life to all people. That wins the prize. Because only, Romans 5.18, only in it does the apostle set forth not only the one who encompasses all, Jesus Christ, through whom the rectification or justification of life comes to all people. But he also accentuates the one righteous act through which that rectification came. Christ event that one righteous act is the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ who on the real first Christmas day though eternally existing as God was made in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to be made to be sin so that we, all people, would be made the righteousness of God in him. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, of course, comes into focus here, as does 2 Corinthians five twenty one. Romans five eighteen points to the universally rectifying, setting right, and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ. By speaking of his one righteous act. 1 Corinthians 15.22 doesn't quite do this. Not compactly, though the context is most certainly there. Especially regarding resurrection. But the verse in its compactness doesn't quite do it. Nor do the other verses that compete for a summary statement of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ or the universal impact of his 
cross of Christ. Romans 5.18 effectively communicates both the one, Jesus Christ, whose saving significance is universal, and the one act of righteousness, his obedience to the extent of death on the cross, which has universally saving impact. There isn't really another verse quite like Romans 5.18. We can talk of experiences of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think I've had a more powerful experience of the Holy Spirit in the study of Romans than in looking at that verse one day in my study and having it fan out and open up and embrace and encompass my own being. And that's the center from which I preach, the center from which I teach. And it brought me into an eschatological perspective of things in which already Jesus Christ is the reality of the reconciliation of God and man right there in person. Already in him bodily is all the fullness of divinity in him is all the fullness of created reality in him is both divine and created uncreated and created reality encompassed in him. The family of God is the family of the Trinity that's embraced all of creation. Christmas celebrated from an eschatological perspective is an entirely different kind of celebration. And it can't be distracted by the cosmic Christmas spirit. The small s. One of the hidden idols in our culture. Romans 5.18 effectively communicates both the one, Jesus Christ, And his act, his cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his elevation to the right hand of the Father. So there really isn't another verse quite like Romans 5.18. Especially when it comes to the saving significance and the impact of his cross. But there are verses, again, that compete. One of them is our climax verse of Romans, Romans 8.32. Since indeed God did not spare his very own son, though he spared Abraham's. He did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all. So how will he not with him freely grant us all things? There's a countless number of presents under that tree the tree of Calvary or there's second Corinthians five fourteen, which it should be the motivation of every Christian witness say nothing of every Christian minister for Christ's love compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And of course, the implications of that are astounding because no one living can be justified. So if all died when Christ died, then all are justified when he, the justified one, rises. 
This is what's eschatologically true. It is not historically demonstrable. It's eschatologically true and will be historically manifested on a day that God has appointed to appear universally where all flesh all together will see the salvation of the Lord. Once you understand this perspective, you'll never ask the question again, why does he give faith to some and not to others in this age? You'll never ask that question again. You ask it now, so do I. But you'll never ask it once you see what comes first. What comes first is not history, but eschatology. What comes first is what happens in God at Calvary and in the resurrection, not what happens in history. In one real sense, what happens in history stays in history. But we then share the history of Christ, crucified together with him, buried with him by baptism by the Spirit, buries us into his death, raised together with him to newness of life, newness of life, newness of livingness, a shared livingness with Messiah. So, if you put 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 19, you get close to Romans 5, 18. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. The message that announces that the reconciliation is already in the person of Jesus Christ. The effect of reconciliation between God and humankind, God and all things, has been effected in eschatological perception. Faith perceives this. Faith participates in this. Why does God give faith to some and not to others until the appearing? That's a question that you'll never ask again. Once God makes the distinction and the differentiation of consciousness, dividing soul from spirit, distinguishing eschatology from history. And that's what I'm beginning to see. It's kind of a, no operation is without some pain, even if it's only in the recovery. This is a painful operation, but it's a worthy pain. It's a suffering that brings us into an understanding. It brings out an insight. And so, hopefully you won't have to suffer. I'll, I'll do the suffering for you on this one and then communicate to you the distinction. I'm saying that half-heartedly, but my real prayer is, why can't they suffer? No, not really. My real prayer is, thank you for suffering on behalf of us. We all have our share of it. So we could give honorable mention to many other contestants in this Christmas competition, but it's time to shift to second gear now. In our run-up to Romans 8, Romans 5.18, let me cite it again. So then, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, so the righteous act of the one 
came the rectification of life to all people. Now jump from there to Romans 8.1 and you'll get the point. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wait. Can you read those almost back to back? Yeah, you can. There's a lot of stuff you can read back to back and cut out all the middlemen in Romans. I've been doing it all the way through Romans 9 through 11. I call it exegetical archery. You fire an arrow from one place to another. You get the final arrows, hit Romans 11:26. all Israel being saved, all the Gentiles being saved, mercy upon all, and a doxology of God that's astounding. If you fire this arrow from 518 to 8.1, what do you got? So then as through one sin came condemnation to all people, so that the, so through the righteous act of one came rectification of life to all people, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, also known as all people. We're thinking eschatologically now. How do you like it? You thought Alice in Wonderland had to make some adjustments. Well, here's one rabbit hole you'll be glad you fell down. This is eschatological thinking. Brings me back to a message or a commentary written in 1980 by Ernst Kasemann, one of the mentors of Jürgen Moltmann. His very important commentary in 1980 on Romans. I'm reminded of comments. And again, I think it's a partially photographic memory because I kind of remember it was on the page. And then I kind of remember where it was. I wrote it down. So I did find it within about 10 minutes. He said this. Universalism and the most radical individualism are two sides of the same coin. Speaking specifically in Romans 1.16 there, where he talks about the gospel being the power of salvation to everyone who believes, but not exclusively to everyone who believes. First Timothy 4.10, very interpretive and very summing up of what Paul is saying. Universalism. And the most radical individualism, universalism is only seen from an eschatological perspective. Individualism is seen where we seem to see like one by one, individually, God awakening people to this truth and bringing them in experientially to Christ in an experience. That's history. History sees the one by oneness of it. And the gospel effectively just wakes people up. Awake you sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And, of course, Paul would go further and say, he's shown into my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines forth in the face of Jesus Christ. Once you see that light that shines forth from the face of Jesus Christ, then it shines into your heart. It has the same effect as when God first said, let there be light. It lit up the whole universe. It lights up your whole universe. 
it shows the universally saving impact of the cross of Christ. You see it shining from the face of one who was more brutalized than anyone else who underwent crucifixion because there was a lot more resentment and hatred and vengefulness that went into his death by those who put him to death. But he rose from the dead. So, if we consider Romans 5.18 with Romans 8.1, both universalism and the most radical individualism are stressed. In one sense, the eschatological sense, and I'm speaking of eschatology that really has nothing to do with history except to sum it all up in an event and in a person named Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him crucified, the tenses there always assume and presume and presuppose his resurrection because it means Jesus Christ and him having been crucified. The one whom God raised from the dead is the crucified Messiah. So, in one sense, the eschatological sense, all people are already in Christ Jesus with no condemnation. So, Father, forgive them extends out pretty far, don't you think? I mean, unlimitedly. 70 times 7 times infinity. That's universalism. You can argue it all day long with someone who doesn't see it or want to see it. You can argue it all day long, but unless they have the eschatological perspective, they'll never see it. They'll they'll always argue against it. They can't but argue against it, and you can't blame them. Like, I don't blame myself for arguing against it before having that perspective granted to me as a gift of God's grace. It's what is eschatologically true and has been true ever since Jesus spoke the fateful word from the cross to Telestai. Some obviously brilliant scholar attacked our pronunciation of it and our name to Telestai by saying, Jesus didn't say that, he said it in Aramaic. Well, you're right. And how profound of a scholar you are. We bow to your excessive wisdom. Of course, he said it in Aramaic. Something like, Asa, it is done, it's completed, it's finished, it's made, meaning the new creation is done. The Tetelestai is the closest rendition we have in the Greek text, and the Bible was written in the Greek text, largely in the New Testament. Rendered pretty much imperfectly, it is accomplished. Which indicates the accomplishment of a divine mission of the Son into this evil age. The accomplishment of a mission. Politicians tend to be premature in their interjection of the word mission accomplished. They often say it when the mission isn't accomplished. But 
It's an election year after all. There was no exaggeration in this. Mission accomplished. Something was done in the eschaton, the person, Jesus Christ, the eschatos Adam, the final Adam, the last Adam, the last word, Christ. John 19.30. Universally and eschatologically speaking, all are in Christ Jesus, and for them there is no condemnation. In the historical sequence of what we might call events as we view them, current and otherwise, or past, in the historical sequence of what we might call events, each individual enters into Christ Jesus at a particular moment by the baptism, not in water, but by the Holy Spirit, by an enactment of the Holy Spirit in his divine expedition into this world, this evil age, the second divine mission. The divine enactment of each person's regeneration, then, is radically individualistic. In the revelation of Jesus Christ to each individual, the Holy Spirit gifts the individual with faith as the means of understanding by faith through faith. We understand and the son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know what among other things that we are in him who is true to give us an understanding that we are in him who is true. This is the true God, Jesus Christ and eternal life. He wakes us up to the fact that we, all humanity for whom Christ died, is in the true one. We are all in the true one. This understanding comes with the gift of faith. So wake up. I can say wake up all day long, but only the spirit can wake you up and wake up those to whom we speak and with whom we converse. But every time we speak to someone, believer or unbeliever, we should take note in our soul that we are speaking to someone for whom there is no condemnation. So, in the revelation, when God saw fit, he revealed his son in me, Paul said. And it doesn't say two there, just two, but in me, meaning in my case. In the case of a man whose entire mainspring to live was to kill and quash the community of Jesus Christ. That's when God revealed his son to him at the height of his evil. And that man saw finally understood that a transgressor isn't someone who doesn't do the law, but someone who does the law with the expectation of justification by it. So he was the worst sinner. This saying is utterly reliable, he said. And you can take it to the bank. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, special transgressors. Those who build after something was torn down, they rebuild something after it's torn down. They're the greatest transgressors. If the law became ended in Christ, 
If the law was ended as a means for righteousness and I go back and take the law as a means for righteousness, I've rebuilt what God destroyed and I make myself a super transgressor. That's what Paul was. He wasn't kidding. As one blameless by the measurement of the rectitude required by external observance of Torah, he was blameless. And yet this was not a rectifying righteousness. So something happened that made him count that all as done. To write it all off as a loss. What happened to him was the apocalypse of Jesus Christ in his life. At the height of his sinfulness. When Christ was born of a woman, born under the law, we fail to recognize that that put him in the predicament of all human beings. Because to be under the law is to be under the curse because sin had hijacked or commandeered the law for its own purpose. Much more will come about in Galatians about that. So in the revelation of Jesus Christ to each individual, the Holy Spirit gifts the individual with faith as a means of understanding that Christ's faithfulness has justified that person. And as a means of participation in Christ's livingness, that faith is given. Why did you give me faith? So that you could participate in my son's livingness. And understand the unconditional nature of my love. What has become eschatologically a universal reality? Whether you know it or not, see it or not, acknowledge it or not, it is a reality. The reality. It is the truth. It may not be your truth. That's a new thing now. My truth. This is my truth. My truth trumps all other truths. No, the truth embodied in Jesus Christ far outweighs your truth. It might even make your truth into a lie. It might even show your truth to be a lie. Oftentimes, when people say that's my truth, it's just their excuse to act like a jerk. And that's why, as someone said recently, and I won't put all millennials in this category, but one person recently said, you can't tell a joke to a millennial. There'll be something, and then it offends them. Some wrong pronoun. Wrong pronoun! You're damned! Stoned in the public square. Hung publicly. So, you just have to be careful not to speak, talk, think, move, walk, or eat around them. That's not all, of course, but not all. There's millennials in this room right here. Of course, it doesn't apply to you. I just told a joke and you're laughing. But it's like going up to someone who has a severe sunburn to the point of sun poisoning and then slapping them on the back. You can't slap them on the back. They're too hypersensitive. They might punch you. But any case, that's so much for social commentary. That's two minutes of the message. Sorry about that. But what has become eschatologically a universal reality that all are in Christ Jesus with no condemnation becomes a radically individual reality in each case 
When God chooses in his own time to effect a new birth in that individual in their own fullness of time. The individual in whom the spirit creates faith is effectively brought into subordination to God. When Christ comes, all things will be subordinated to him. We're just the preview of that. We've become subordinated to him, submitted to his righteousness, no longer establishing a righteousness of our own. And so we have been subordinated to him. The individual in whom the spirit creates faith is effectively brought into subordination to God and the lordship of Christ, which is a lordship of freedom. And enters the community which joins the chorus of the skies in praise of the God of universal mercy. Another comment by Kazaman helps at this point, and we'll move into the close soon. Commenting on Romans 11:33 to 36, he wrote this: "As in 118 and following, 512 and following, 819 and following. Universal redemption is in view with Christology at its center. Finally, the acclamation as in Revelation and Philippians 2.11 takes up the cosmic veneration, the worldwide worship of God. And this is what I emphasized this last part of his quote. In the praise of the community. There is already uttered that which one day the whole world will have to confess and will have to confirm with its amen. And by have to confess, he doesn't mean coercion. He means, how can I, how can I do other but praise him? So in one sense, all people are in Christ Jesus and no longer in Adam. If that's not the case, then why did Christ die for all and rise from the dead? It has to be the case. The association of all humanity in all of its historical times is no longer with Adam. There's a show called Adam Ruins Everything, to which I reply, not anymore. That's Clouseau. Remember Clouseau? He's... Pink Panther. He ruined a grand piano with a mace from a, a knight. He smashed it to smithereens. And a woman said, that was a priceless Steinway. And he said, not anymore. <laughs> Adam ruins everything. Not anymore. Christ rectified everything. The association of all humanity in all of its historical times is no longer with Adam. That's hard for you, isn't it? Is that hard for you to see or recognize? That's what's brought this ministry into controversy with so many people. It's not a matter of changing from one doctrine to another. It's a matter of coming to a certain viewpoint, standpoint, which you see the eschatological universal view that God granted to us by faith. And once you say that, it's controversial to people who think you've switched allegiances somehow from their human affiliation to another human affiliation when all you've done is see things in Christ rather than in Adam. See things eschatologically instead of merely historically. I like what Abraham Heschel said, quoted last week, history is not sufficient in itself. 
That's why Jesus Christ came into the world from outside it, into human history from outside it, to affect the redemption of all history, and in fact, to redeem time itself. And so the association of all humanity in all of its historical times, past, present, and future, is no longer with Adam as the bearer of their destiny unto condemnation and death. But with Jesus Christ, the bearer of our destiny in justification and life. We're getting close to a thing that's been historically called the gospel here. It's called good news for a reason. It elevates the soul, and as the song said that Charlie brilliantly sang today, makes the soul feel its worth in the eyes of God. Greatest present God gave me, Christmas present, was my soul feeling its worth in his eyes. And then being able to look out on a vista of humanity Realizing that he views every soul the same way and cherishes every soul as having infinite worth. That's philanthropy. That's not Elvis giving someone a Cadillac. That's God giving participation with his son to all humankind. But God chooses to awaken people to this on a radically individualistic basis. God chooses to awaken people to this on a radically individual scale. The living God is therefore truly the savior of all people, but especially, now we're talking historically, in the course of this evil age, those who believe, that is, of those who are individually awakened by faith. This doesn't make them special. It just makes them especially the heirs of salvation during the course of an evil age. Nobody is especially the heir of salvation, eschatologically speaking. But historically speaking, the way we see it, there are some who believe and some who are not believing yet. It doesn't make us special, those of us who believe. Those of us who believe in Christ are simply people who are aware that Christ's faithfulness has justified us, not our faith. Those who do not believe still think their faith justifies them. The human act of it. As Paul said, Christ will profit you nothing if you're circumcised. I say to you this, that Christ will profit you nothing in terms of fellowship or gratitude or thankfulness or participation with his livingness. If you think the human act of your believing justified you, you're out of whack with Christ. Galatians will bring that home. That'll bring home the meaning of Christmas. Not a pink aluminum Christmas tree. <laughs> clang, clang. This really brings Christmas close to a person. You know, I never thought of Christmas until I smelled chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Until Jack Frost nipped at my nose. 
Just a, um, that's just a little elbow jab. That's all right. We're assured by Isaiah that all flesh together will experience the glory, which is the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. But for now, individuals are being awakened one by one to have Christ, who is the image of God, shine on them. We are dealing here with what's historically real and true, distinguished from its, what is eschatologically real and true, a distinction that God will be working into tetelestai phalanx, you shield-wielding soldiers of Christ in the coming year. Third gear, and it'll be quick. Third and fourth gear, quick. There's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, and there is justification. Necessarily, no condemnation means there is justification because they, we, died together with Christ and were made alive together with him. Not just, oh, let's give them life over there so they're alive. Like a live trout wiggling on the shore after it's been caught. It's alive, but it's not having much fun. No, he made us alive together with Christ. Because we died with him. No one alive could be justified, so we died with him who was justified by his own faithful obedience to God. So we were justified with him when we died with him and rose with him. Being made alive together out of death with Jesus, we were justified with him. For Romans 3.26 speaks of God justifying Jesus from his faithfulness. That is on the basis of his faithful death. So now the word nomos or law, Paul plays with that word flesh as we've seen it's got about five meanings so does law law comes into the place of meaning power in this look at romans 8 2 for the law the power of the spirit of life in christ jesus make the law nomos there the principle or the power for the power of the spirit of life in christ jesus has liberated me notice the radical individualism here continuing from romans 7 liberated me the person who attempts to be justified by the works of the law gets terribly frustrated and calls out for deliverance in Romans 7:24 individualism here has liberated me from the law the power of sin and death sin capital s death capital d literally the sin and the death adverse superhuman powers that once enslaved us were free verse 3 for what the sinaitic law the law of moses from the mountain that was actually given through the disposition of angels through the hand of a mediator, Moses and the angels called the Elohim in Psalm 82, six played around with the law to make it a source of justification, which makes it a demonic gospel, which we will hit again in Galatians. Very controversial, but the controversy isn't mine. It's Paul's by the hand of angels, Galatians three nineteen, And as Stephen said just before they stoned him to death you receive the law by the disposition of angels and you don't keep it at all and you always resist the Holy Spirit you always have and you always will that's history of Israel that's not eschatological where all Israel is saved getting the point here what the Sinaitic law was powerless to do notice the word powerless because it was rendered powerless by the flesh capital F-L-E-S-H which is the power of sin that commandeered the law 
God did. There it is. God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sin-controlled humanity. And for sin, that is for, with a reference to its removal, God condemned sin, not human beings. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ because the sin of Adam was condemned in the flesh of the second Adam. God condemned sin in the flesh. That's the flesh of his sinless son. The word became flesh in order to become sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In order that the rectitude, notice that, that's God-approved livingness. The God-approved livingness required by the law, now it's the law of God, which is summed up in love God totally and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of God that the flesh, the person controlled by sin, cannot comply with. But it's the love that the Holy Spirit produces in us. The law of God summed up in two mandates, love totally God and love your neighbor as yourself so that it would be fulfilled in us, fulfilled in us, that is those who are liberated from the power of sin and death, that is in those who comport themselves in a manner. The word walk here is a metaphor with an ethical tone. They comport themselves in a manner, not in the flesh, that is in their creaturely frailty they comport themselves in the flesh that is in their creaturely frailty that we have right now not determined by the flesh with a capital F but by the spirit fourth gear is brief then the spirit incidentally is the one who raised Christ from the dead who resides in our bodily members fourth gear is very brief it consists of a preview of Galatians which in very high probability was written before Romans. So note in closing, Galatians 4, how splendidly the theological center of Galatians, Galatians 4, 4 through 6, two DMs, divine missions. Divine mission one, or you can call it divine expedition if you want. From Xenophon, the great military writer, wrote a book called Anabasis, which means expedition. Most, it's very well advised to read that if you want a sense of military history. Xenophon and his 10,000. Xenophon's Anabasis expedition. There are two divine expeditions into this evil age. The expedition of the sun, accomplished. The expedition of the spirit, ongoing in the people of God. Awakening people moment by moment in history. One by one in history. Baptizing them into union with Christ. Two divine missions, and our participation with them is at the heart of Galatians. Galatians 4, divine mission 1. But when the fullness of time came, that's a time when the father determined that the slave in, in the above verses would become an heir and a son. Fullness of time here refers to the birth of Jesus in history. God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the power of the law. So he too is like us, the minors in that sense. In order to redeem, that means deliver, buy back, rescue those under the power of the law. Which, as Paul demonstrates in Galatians, and we'll see it hopefully, uh, those under the law is not just the Jews, but all of humanity. Because the law was commandeered by the power of sin that has control over all humanity. 
in order that we, that's we, you and me, would receive the full privilege of legal heirs, which is the adoption as sons. Now, in verse 6, as you are sons, the sons of God, which is a name for eschatological Israel, the Israel of God, God sent forth, here's DM2, DM1 and 2, Divine Mission 2, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, which means Father. Who is crying out in our hearts? The spirit of the son. Who is the prime subject of our living? The spirit of the son. Jesus Christ is the subject of our living. He cries out Abba as we cry out Abba, which means it is no longer us that live, but Christ who lives in us. And we live now with him as the subject of our living. Our life is Christ. Our life is hid with Christ in God. If you say you already know this, you've proven to me today that you don't know this. Because we're talking about a standpoint, not a knowledge. We're talking about a revelation, not an academic illumination. We're talking about God giving you the place to stand to see this. And if you're smug about thinking you know it, you don't know it. Or if you think you know it already, you don't know it. And if we think we know anything, we don't know anything yet as we ought to know it. So I know it in some regard, but I'm thinking I don't know it yet as I ought to know it. So drill it home to me in 2019, 20, 21, if you give me that much time. So in closing, notice that the spirit of the son was sent forth into our hearts. The very center and mainspring of our being. The spirit of the son cries out, Abba. The spirit of the son cries out, Abba. He is the prime subject of our living. When we say, I live, the I that lives is Christ, the spirit of the son. Here's the meaning of Christmas. Here's the true Christmas spirit. Do you have it? Or better yet, does he have you? Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to send a Christmas card to Tetelestai Phalanx. And this is it. This one's signed, though, not by a pastor, but by the great shepherd of the sheep, whose resurrection from the dead brought him into the position of being our great shepherd, watching over us, giving us the understanding, the perspective of eschatology, the perspective of Christ. May we realize ever more and more from this Christmas season onward, from this moment onward, that it is no longer I who lives, not just I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. And so may that love control us. For we have come to recognize that if one died for all, and if that one in dying was justified, then all died and therefore were justified. And he was raised again, for our justification had already occurred in his death. We are justified by his blood, 
therefore, says Romans 5, 9. Now much more shall we be saved by his life, which he lives in us, which he lives in us.